everyone, and welcome to this very, very special episode of Partners in Time. I'm here with my co-host Chris Granger-Hair. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm good, Paul. How are you? Uh, very, very well. And we have some celebrating to do. 50 years or episodes? Is it years or episodes? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in fast-forward COVID time. It probably feels like 50 years. And, and honestly, I nearly fell off my chair when I read it's 50 episodes already. But uh, a what a journey it's been. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Our podcast Partners in Time has his 50th episode and, and we're here sitting and we kind of want to travel a little bit back in time and talk about the special episodes. And I have a couple of things that I remember. You have a couple of things that you remember. For me, it's been really, really an interesting journey uh, because in each episode, I learned a lot, especially about the IWC world, about the watchmaking world. But it was also always a great pleasure to listen to your episodes whenever you had guests talking over there. So it's been, it's been a win-win situation on my yeah. side of things. It's been amazing. I think when, when, when you look at many of the um, Watch World and independent podcasts, of course, that really focus on product, 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 and all the people around it. It's been, it's been amazing to open it up a little bit. And because, you know, that's gonna, we're going to come back to it in a minute um, when we talk about the Hans Zimmer episode, which of course I have to mention yeah. first. That's absolutely clear. Um, but he, he talked about, you know, the receiving end of a product of craftsmanship becoming part of the story and part of the circle. And I think that's really what happened in Partners in Time, that when you extend the universe to all of the people that interact with the brand and interact with the products and all the characters that come together through the shared passion for mechanical watchmaking, I personally think it's a really interesting different perspective than rather than just talking about product manufacturing design and so on. Um, and I hope that it's an interesting offering for, for, our, for our friends. Two years ago, we released the very, very first episode. Do you still remember with whom and do you remember something about that episode? Yeah, no, how could I forget? I mean, Lewis Hamilton, opening partners in time. Obviously, this is this is one way to get started. So you're completely new to the world of podcasting and your first guest is Lewis Hamilton, who is so eloquent and, and so yeah. to the point that you just automatically, your nerves are just absolutely laid bare in this situation. But we got through it somehow, I think. <laughs> and, you did uh, a good no, job. Yeah, no, I remember. I mean, it was amazing insight. Sometimes it really surprises me what is actually coming out in this podcast situation that you you never knew and you don't expect. So Lewis obviously talked about his first um, serious mechanical watch <laughs> or first serious watch that he thought was uh, classically elegant, which he bought in Argos of all places. And obviously me remembering my Argos days back in the day, I had problems staying on the chair at that point because I have fond memories. You know, Argos, for those listeners who don't know what Argos yeah. is, it's a catalog shop. So this was e-commerce kick and collect from back in the day. Yeah. So you walked into a little sort of bare room. There were rows and rows of laminated 2000 page catalogs And then little notepads with pencils. And you had to basically note down a six-digit order number for something you wanted, write it down on a piece of paper, hand in the piece of paper at a very sort of hostile-looking counter, and then somebody would appear from a warehouse in a brown cardboard box and hand you your actual order. So this was sort of e-commerce for beginners. So the idea that Lewis Hamilton ordered his first status symbol watch from Argos was quite interesting, but I'm sure we're going to listen to a snippet of that. Yeah, yeah, I prepared the snippet and he's talking about his watch collection in his childhood and, and his very first one. And, and that's a different story, but it made him very proud. So let's listen to that little one minute snippet. It, it was very, very classy, very 
you know, way too old. Classical. It's super classic uh, kind of look, way too old for, for a young kid. But I, I honestly, I, I remember wearing it and feeling empowered when I had it. I was like, when people see this, this is kind of, this is a cool looking watch rather than the plastic things that the other kids were, were having. And it was nine pounds. Baby G's. <laughs> It was, yeah, it was it was literally nine pounds for the. I think it was nine pounds. Yeah. I'm sorry, nineteen pounds. I think it was. Um, Lido, that that bought you a house back in those days. <laughs> yeah, I was I was definitely really proud of it. Um, and I, actually, I think when, the, the real one I had bef- was before that was a Mickey Mouse watch because I I went to Disneyland when I was like five. Um, those oh, are cool. Yeah. So. My, my kids are still wearing these smart bands from Disney World, you know, that gets you all the, the, the keyless access to stuff. And that doesn't even show the time, but they still wear it because they're so, so in, in love with their Disney experience still from two years ago. Yeah, I, I really like uh, those childhood stories. And it's nice to hear these kind of childhood. Yeah. My mom had a Mickey Mouse watch. I didn't, really? I, didn't, I didn't tell her this in the episode, yeah. but my mom being, you know, a graduated lawyer with her own practice, well-established, she, she wore Mickey Mouse watch. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's so interesting to see the human side of Lewis, for example, like how he grew up and how human he is and, and how he interacted with it. Because normally they're like superstars and they're going in corners, high speed, crazy, like they're, they're basically stuntmen. But I had kind of a similar story. Yeah, with George, I was going to say. Perfect Russell. segue. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so um, I, I want to listen to it first and then let's talk a little bit about it. At the time, you, you look at these guys as if they're superheroes. You know, I, I remember I was at an award ceremony and um, I think it was the, the same year, um, coincidentally, 2009, when Braun had won the championship and obviously yeah. uh, Ross Braun being being the, the co-founder And I remember he was at this award ceremony and just t- totally coincidentally, we were at, uh, went to the bathroom at the same time. And as this 11-year-old kid, I couldn't believe Ross Braun went to the toilet. I don't know what, what I thought, <laughs> but I thought like I thought these superheroes you know, didn't do those things. Don't. Or, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And it's, I, I'll always remember that, thinking, you know, wow, Ross Braun went to the toilet. Like it's crazy. <laughs> it's it's only now that I'm I'm in Formula One and I see all of these guys and I, you know, obviously all in, insanely talented, but they're just normal human beings at the end of the day, and that's uh, something that I've I've only learned since I I arrived in the Formula One. It's it's quite funny. I mean, it is. It must be. Uh, I, it's it's so nice to envision. George sitting there and like learning the reality of life of yeah. Formula One life, and then realizing that not all things that happen in Formula One toilets are superhero likes. <laughs> Absolutely, I mean we've been to some. We spend a fair amount at race weekends, and I've washed my hands several times next to drivers who are ready to go and stuff. Like, and you're like, ah, yeah, well, should I let him through? He's 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 probably a little bit more time pressures. Yeah. I guess you have had the same situation. Yeah, yeah, right? it's. The meeting point in Formula One, I mean, in the paddock, I mean, and you kind of have to pretend the whole time like it's sort of the most normal thing on earth. Like You can't go all fanboy on these people, on the t- you know, in the middle of the toilet. They just won't go down very well. But I actually remember the first person I met in Formula One was probably Ross Braun. 
I think even before, yeah, even before I met uh, Nico Rosberg, I think pretty much the first introduction would have been Ross back in the day when he was in charge of Mercedes. So I can totally relate to that. In the restroom as well. Well, No, no. no. (laughs) I I don't think, I think it was Brackley in the office. (laughs) I think one of the first pictures I ever took of Nico in F1 was on day one uh, in the mirror because like mirrors and washing hands is always kind of a nice set up and yeah. I did like documentary style photos of it so I asked him like can I take a picture of this and because he's in full race kit you know so it's it's a little weird situation and visually very strong Um what I did not realize he said yeah that's okay but wait a second I'm like okay because there was another driver peeing in the back of it <laughs> using the urinals and Nico had the foresight of seeing it and said like you can't take pictures right now it's like you have to wait until he was ready it was a Ferrari driver so like there <laughs> we waited for that and we waited to clear the background yeah. and then I took that picture and I do I still very very vividly remember the story about Toto and his toilet manager did you ever did you did he ever tell you that no, story he didn't tell me sorry the toilet manager no yeah T- he was the me. first one who hired a single person and valued him very, very much. And he actually told that story in Harvard. So he teached a class in Harvard Business School and he talked about like his love for detail and his, uh, pretty, like he's addicted to optimizing every single detail. And because it's a highly sponsorship, a high-end surrounding, he was very keen on keeping the toilet clean. Um, because he said that's a place where we show our craftsmanship on the highest level and everything. And he was not totally happy when he started an F1 with Mercedes um, of the level of clean, yeah, how clean the toilets were. So he hired a person and valued him super much. And he's still with the team today. And it's kind of interesting. Um, and they talked lot of, lots about micromanaging and is that micromanaging yeah, or is it It makes perfect a... sense. It makes perfect <laughs> sense. And I, I can only assume that from that, that day forward, he only ordered Toto toilets. But okay, that's a, that's a flat joke. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, you know, I, you know, you know my, my background is in interior design. And I was yeah. always, we were always, I was taught by my boss at the time to always make toilets and bathroom environments extra super special and we never tried to say okay this is the concept for the space and then we have the toilets as an add-on which are kind of sort of a lower tier version of the main space we always changed con- like the entire concept completely and made the toilet spectacular and i do agree it makes a, a big big difference to how you perceive a brand and to that point i uh, visited a couple of years ago one of the major uh industry captains, uh, executive toilet facilities at a corporate headquarter, which shall not be named. And when you walk into there, and it's basically like the most basic uh, hospital-styled uh, bathroom yeah. experience, it does make you wonder, right, whether somebody who claims that they're all into luxury, etc., whether that's actually for real. So I totally, totally agree with Toto's viewpoint that this attention to detail in the bathroom environment is absolutely important. And you guys do have, I, I very vividly, I mean, Toto is one of my most impressive, like one of the people I 
learned the most in my life. Likewise. So I, I really look up to him. And um, But I would call him a friend as well as you would call yes. him a friend. But yes. I vividly remember uh, the podcast report recording with <laughs> Toto. Yeah. Uh, where Well-mannered in the toilet, not so well-mannered at the racetrack at times. <laughs> <laughs> so he told a story about um, his temper, I would say. So yeah. let's let's listen to that story for a little bit in a little uh, yeah, throwback to the episode with Toto. Last year, when I got more excited in the race, I got a watch that could sustain 20 Gs, and that was necessary. <laughs> They really changed after you hit, like, I've seen you on TV. So you hit the desk when you got mad, which is which is good that you hit the desk and not something else. But IWC called you after that and said, we may need to change the watch on your wrist. Yeah, it was quite funny because uh, Chris Granger, who runs IWC, we, are, we have established a really close relationship. And he said, "There's, I have something that you need. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's a watch that can sustain your tantrums. <laughs> it's a watch that can sustain 20,000 Gs. And I got a big pilot's uh, watch shock absorber XPL in our green racing colors. And I'm so thankful. I've been wearing it all along and uh, it hasn't got any scratch, nor is it being damaged. That's that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. Is it true? And tell me a little bit about your friendship with Toto, please. Well, absolutely. No, it, it, it's I, I totally uh, like you already said. You know, I, I look up to him massively. Um, he's, he's one of my key me mentoring friends over the years. I think when we first met back in 2017 in Barcelona, testing. You know, we had a very nice connection from from the beginning, and and it's developed very strongly ever since. And I think he's somebody who has a unique skill in understanding people very, very profoundly, uh, and being able to really parachute into a situation, identify with any got a sort of given problem and, and really come up with very, very good advice extremely quickly, which is very, very impressive. But of course, this amount of intellect and passion often comes with a lot of emotion as well. I can totally yeah. identify with that as well. And there was this uh, situation, I think it was the Hungarian Grand Prix back in 2019, I would guess. And um, there was this overtaking moment. It's on YouTube everywhere. You can find it. And, and Toto at the time was wearing a Serotanium uh, Top Gun double chronograph. And you can really see in slow motion all the Insta clips how he gets so excited about this overtaking moment that he's basically just whacks the table full force with his wrist. And obviously, you're generating acceleration forces of you know, 1500 G plus when you do that kind of thing. So I thought, okay, here we are. <laughs> we have to create some special equipment. And then, you know, at the time we had this world record shock absorber watch in the works and I knew I had to make one with the uh, Petronas colored uh, BMG uh, spring in the center just to to give Total something that really resists all of those incidents and the subsequent ones with the headsets etc <laughs> what followed since uh, it's been a faithful uh, companion for Total so uh, yeah a story I really really liked it's so it's so amazing those relationships with with the team as well as with Other partners. Yeah. I mean, um, I Toto, think the podcast, there, there was one, yeah. one thing, um, if you don't mind me just mentioning that, because I, I often get asked that when I speak to journalists, our customers, and you wouldn't believe how much influence in our designs actually comes from the people like Toto, like Lewis around the brand, giving us inputs, you know, whether it's people like Matt Jones, our Spitfire pilot, specifying exactly what he needs in a watch. It's not marketing. This is absolutely real. You know, and people say, well, did he actually help design this watch? I said, yes, of course. I mean, we have... WhatsApp chains of like 600 messages going back and forth of ideas and concepts. You know, people wear these objects on their skin and they're hugely passionate 
about you know the, the kind of objects they were. So it's a lot of these influences, including what happened with the shock absorber and what continues to happen with that. They are inspired by the people around the brand, and it's it's that for me that makes the story so exciting. There's also like I've been quite surprised in several times when I listen to your episodes with guests you hosted. Um, that people have things in common or your guests and oh, you yeah, yeah. have things in common. I wouldn't expect to be honest. Like, like one of the people was uh, David Fisher. So, and he's like, he's the coolest influential person I've ever met in my whole life. So like, um, Uh, but do you remember what you had in common with him? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we found out that we basically went to the same shops as teenagers. But yeah. let's have a listen back at that moment. Yeah. And I had no idea. Where yeah, did I you think, have a footlocker back in those days? I mean, I had one in Frankfurt, but I, was, I had to travel to that, basically. Same thing. Exactly. So I was at that time, I was living outside of Frankfurt, actually. Oh, so we went to the same footlocker, Hauptwache, huh? Exactly. That yeah, that's exactly. So that's exactly the footlock I went to, <laughs> and uh, and where I picked up my my first pair of Air Force Ones, uh, and I will never forget them. It was a um, it was a navy blue pair mid top Air Force One, yeah. and the ankle strap had an American flag on it, and it was there. You go. Yeah, it was a very special sneaker for me, and and I and I remember funnily a few moments like that. Funnily, all in that footlocker, yeah. you know, like the Air Max 97, yeah. that silver uh, Nike shoe uh, was a huge deal because that was the first time where I really, really remember spending, I mean, for that age, uh, especially a considerable amount yeah. of money on a sneaker. You know, it was a lot of money. Definitely. And so, yeah. So I think that was, yeah, that, that's my first <laughs> sneaker experience. That's amazing. That's, that's so cool because, my, you know, in the end, my mom actually refused to go into that footlocker. So I would go in there because she found it way too stressful. You know, this is the time before social distancing. And this store was, even back then, was very much packed. And she yeah. would send me in there. She would let me do my thing. And then ultimately, if I could twist her arm to buy me a pair, she would come in and pay for them. But she would yeah. not go into this store. I was fascinated by that, by that, by the store, by the product. But to be honest, also because of the skateboarders in yeah. front of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it was, it was yeah, such true. a cool place, you know, true. because you had all these skaters there, yeah. you know, all these cool looking kids. And so I would, you know, I was almost hypnotized, yeah. you know, when, when I would go there. Like, and especially, you know, memories. Yeah, totally. And especially being a kid that wouldn't, that didn't live in town. You know, I was like yeah. living half an hour outside of town. You know, so it was an even bigger deal, I suppose. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, Hauptwache, Footlocker, yes. Frankfurt. The, uh, the know, birthplace of IWC yeah, and Heisenberg. But it probably is, you know, because I think David was absolutely spot on. It was that skateboard street style park in front of it, which was basically the the upper level of that tube station, the metro station down at Hauptwache. Yeah. And I, I do think that this really probably shaped my ideas and expectations around retail experience. I, it probably really did because they were, they were immersive experiences because you suddenly had this influx of American culture being brought in. You had these people who were basically dressed, dressed up like referees in their black and white stripy kit. There was an energy to this place where the street style came together with the sneakers and streetwear that, that was really quite something. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny little episode, but talking about having things in common, I think this was only a, you know, a half of what happened in the, the episode you hosted with Alex. Icon. Do you want to tell oh. us more about that? Yeah, let's listen to it. I mean, I think I, I would. I mean, you just scored a one zero if we're talking soccer or football. Um, but I think I scored a double goal with what Alex and I Patrick, had in common. Absolutely, and I, I might top that. Uh, 
der Hauptwache in Frankfurt. But let's let's listen to it. It's been insane. I proposed to my wife of 17 years now in Positano, by the way. So did I. I proposed to my wife on the beach in Positano uh, 12 nice. years ago. <laughs> where, where did Very you propose? Good. Where in Positano uh, did you propose? I made it. I mean, uh, number one, I've been 22. So uh, like it was, uh, it was early. So I Me too. Chose, I was 22 as well. Oh my God, okay. a lot of similarities. <laughs> Very good. And I choose uh, just uh, the Cernus on the terrace there on New Year's Eve. And I, I'm, I'm claiming the fireworks I organized. So like I went down on the knee at exactly one minute to uh, midnight. And then when she said yes, the fireworks started. So um, I've, I kind of, that was, that was good timing to be fair. Yeah, that tops food locker any day. And actually, you know, <laughs> Listening back to that, um, you know, I, I can't quite compete with you guys, but obviously uh, as an engagement uh, present after yeah. I proposed to my wife, we got a trip to Positano. So they, <laughs> no way. Yes. Oh, this is, so this first is a, trip how, as an engaged couple, not not quite 22, as I was a little bit more senior than that. But, okay. <laughs> but yeah, Positano it was. Uh, that's that's amazing. And, and how did you propose? Um, I, I want to hear that story. Yeah, no, of course. Really? No, I proposed in Seefeld in Tirol in Austria. My wife at the time, you know, she had, she worked a, a, nice. a summer season in Seefeld and we always went there for cross country skiing. It's an absolute paradise. We loved the hotels and I had it all planned out. And I would say this was the nervous I've ever, the most nervous I've ever been in my entire life. I was an absolute wreck. And of course, the entire hotel and restaurant were in on it. And basically, uh, you know, we had 13, 14 members of staff just staring at us the entire mealtime and me not being able to eat a single bite. And Paul was the whole time, what are you doing? You're freaking me out. Why are you so nervous? You're sweating. And why are these people staring at us? It was, you know, it was probably less than perfect. But, you know, as I as I went down on one knee, it, 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 it ended up pretty perfect. And I, I remember it fondly, but I was a wreck. It was useless. Very much amazing. How was the skiing season? I mean, I, I'm I'm following you on Insta. All these great, like the visuals of the gondola and yeah. and the whole lag. Well, you you know uh, this whole thing, rea Instagram versus reality. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that's the story of this season. <laughs> Not a lot of snow. No, right? no. We had look. It depends. I mean, high up, um, there's still fantastic conditions right now. But obviously, it's it's been quite warm over Christmas. It's been uh, very very. Uh, uh, nothing like the Sierras. I think also my last trip to LA, I could actually see the snow from the it's city insane, properly, right which looked absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And I've got uh, 600 inches up in Tahoe and stuff. Uh, nothing like that in Europe, but nevertheless, we're grateful for what it was. But it looks great. Like the branding looks amazing. And um, I'm really impressed. I, I, I want to go to Lax just to see the gondola and stuff. You have to. You like, have to. It really and, looks and insane. my my absolute childhood dream went uh, came true a couple of weeks ago when you know we christened we have these snow groomers now um, that are IBC Big Pilot branded uh, in jet black which are beautiful latest model latest tech and after I dropped enough hints they said okay you can come on a Saturday and and we'll let you drive one which was something I always I mean, I've been obsessed with these machines uh, ever since I can remember basically and there's a, a, a opportunity that somebody actually says okay get in have a go I was. Uh, and it's everything I expected it to be. Fantastic machines, really are. It, it sounds amazing and it sounds funny too because like one of the things and there we come together, like Eileen, you had, do you remember that? Let's listen to the episode, like to the part with Eileen. <laughs> I've yes. laughed so hard <laughs> listening to that. Like, uh, oh, and she's a gold, Olympic gold medalist in free ski well, multiple she wasn't, times. She wasn't at that point yet, was she? Okay. But, but still, I'm like, I was like, okay, this is just amazing. Let's let's listen to it. Do you know what IWC is in, in Chinese, in Mandarin? 
is it not international watch company? <laughs> See, we have to ask both things. What, what's it in the US and what's it in China? <laughs> and then we know the amalgamation. No, I see my, my, my Mandarin obviously is absolutely terrible, but it's supposed to be the, the watch of many countries, which is something like Wen Guo Biao, something like that. Oh, Wen Guo Biao. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds much more convincing than mine. And as I learned the other day, in certain areas of the US, we're now called the IDUB. So there you are. So that's... Ooh, you're getting nicknames now, <laughs> getting aren't nicknames. we? Uh, I think you can wrap that. I think that's the, the, <laughs> the, clear, the clear benefit of the IDUB. That's my next project. You can beatbox and I will rap. Okay. Yeah. Or would you like the other way around? No, I no, can, please not. I can bend to your <laughs> wishes, please. <laughs> Can I also, can I DJ in there? Do you need a break dancer? I don't know. Absolutely. Can I join the band? How, how can I be part of this? Well, with your, your dip dye uh, parry t-shirts, I think yeah. you, you're, you're right in there. <laughs> I'm trying my best. But I mean, it was she's such a well-spoken person. It was Absolutely. so interesting. You know, she is so impressive how she's composed. I mean, she does everything from giving lectures, you know, she's obviously to, to all her speaker engagements, to her athletic bit, to her modeling. It's... It's very impressive when you think she's about 19, 20 now, which is absolutely uh, crazy when I think back what I was able or unable to do back in those days. It's, she, she's fascinating, really is fascinating. Absolutely. And I mean, I've, I've, she was talking about at the age of 14 with her coach when, but let's, let's listen to it. But that mm -hmm. was Ed Watches in Wonder in the special episode um, where like it was really, really valuable for me to listen to that and impressive as yeah, well likewise. as she's funny likewise. and very deep too, I would no, say. Let's it, listen it, to That's really, to really proper insight there. Right. I grew up running my whole life and running was everything to me. Mm. My cross-country coach in ninth grade, when I was at the state championship meet, I was super, super nervous. And she said, Eileen, just remember when you're super nervous that the chemical in your brain for when you are fearful before a contest is actually the same chemical for excitement. And it's just your brain labeling it in a negative connotation. Mm. And I think that that little bit of information and little piece of advice really changed my whole mindset towards dealing with pressure because all of a sudden I regained control. I thought, okay, I don't feel nervous because I'm out of control. I feel excited because I have worked so hard and I can't wait to show the world what I've been doing all this time. I mean, I thought several times after listening to that, when I got nervous in other situations, I thought of her and I thought of also the person, the coach, how big the influence of, of sport and coaches and mentors is in the early years at the age of yeah. 14, right? Like, like yeah. I mean, it was yeah. impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me of the, the other episode you, you had with Hayden Cox, you know, where, you know, again, it was a pivotal moment very, very early on when it's basically Hayden being a boy with a big dream. And then something happened that really shaped his path forever. But let's have a listen to that one. I broke my surfboard in the summer school holidays. And what a better way to get a new surfboard than build it yourself. So I rang around all the local factories and I found one factory that was willing to take me in my Easter school holidays. And I did one week work experience. I was lucky enough to impressed the owner of the factory. I swept all his floors, cleaned the toilets just enough to allow him to shape me one, uh, for me to shape one board in his factory. And from there, I, I just fell in love with the whole process of designing, building a board, you know, which includes shaping, laminating and sanding the board. 
and then going out and surfing it and critiquing, critiquing your work and that whole design process from start to finish. And the brand Hayden Shapes is pretty much built over the last 24 years, almost 25 years, board by board. And it's, uh, it's still a family-owned business. Uh, my wife and myself run it today. And it's, um, I guess, a true passion of mine. I, I really get to apply my personal interests into all the areas of the business. I mean, that's determination and passion and toilets again. <laughs> it's really impressive. Yeah. I, I like that yeah. episode a lot. What, what, is, what is very, very impressive with Hayden is the fact that, as he just told, he really started from a pure surfing passion and board shaping uh, perspective, but he very, very quickly developed an extremely strong brand in Hayden Shapes where every single aspect, you know, talking about toilet details, you know, I, I stopped in my tracks when um, my local colleague in, in Australia at the time, Florian, he showed me pictures of Hayden's showroom that he had in North of Sydney that he had designed himself with his wife. And we went up there and I was completely speechless looking at how much there is control and attention to detail and consistency in a brand built by somebody who just comes from the surfing passion angle and who's got no formal training in uh, luxury branding or anything like that. And suddenly it looks like the most high-end brand you can imagine, super tightly controlled. And then you look at the scalability of how somebody who's basically a one-man show or is a family-owned business is able to scale that brand and now does these huge collaborations with Daniel Arsham and all these different furniture collaborations he does, um, apparel ranges, branching out to El Segundo internationally to LA, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that I think is, is very fascinating to see how a single person with a dream and passion can actually scale up a business like that and, and still grow it and still maintaining that personal touch. Absolutely. And I mean, Giselle was a little bit like that too. Like that's been also... Do you remember that episode? Yeah, I, I was just wondering how you're going to bridge to that one now. But no, Giselle, obviously, no, amazing story again. I mean, what she's built over the years and her actual, you know, her passion and drive for the environment and sustainability are really, really impressive and touching. And she gave us a very, very strong image of comparing the environment to the human body. Let's have a listen. There, there is, you know, it's like your, your body, for example. We need to understand this. You have a, you have lungs, you have a heart, you have all these different organs in your body who are essential for the for you to be able to function as a human if they go away and they say okay let's remove your lungs let's remove your heart that's no you this doesn't exist it's impossible you can just remove an organ and say okay now keep living this is the same thing as our planet we can keep eliminating biodiversity and think that we are going to have equilibrium because one each system each each being that exists in this planet has a role It doesn't matter how small or big they are. It's, it's here and it's doing a function that is very important for the balance of life on earth. So we can all continue to be enjoying being in this beautiful planet. And, and, and we in the top, we are on the top of the food chain because we are the ones who have, you know, with technology, with our choices that we really have the impact. The fish or the elephants or they, you know, what are they going to do? You know, <laughs> like they are just living their lives and we are the ones overfishing. We are the ones. You know, it's all about the lack of consciousness. I think it comes down to that. I think if everybody takes responsibility to understand what the impact they're having and, and, and choose companies who are really like doing their processes in a very thoughtful way, now they're voting for a better future. You see, because they are 
because the corporations are really the gonna the ones that are gonna have the bigger impacts because they're the ones the producing everything right from food to clothing to luxury. I mean, it it is extremely important, and I'm I'm a little bit proud that we created this platform um, of the podcast. And sometimes it's funny stories, sometimes it's real personal insights into the stories of the of the guests. But also, um, I mean, there's messages like these that are clearly important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then very touching. And we know now it's not up to the elephants. It's actually up to us in yeah. industry to make the change. And I think this is something that we always advocate very strongly. You know, we are in a business that is a luxury product designed to last forever. But it also means that we're in a business that charges a premium that allows us to make responsible choices. Right? And, and this is an ability, but it's also a responsibility because we have to make sure that as we approach our product design, our product distribution, everything around our brand, that we keep improving the way we do things to really maximize the, the, the product experience that our customers are receiving and minimizing our impact. Absolutely. Um, the, I heard it like you were talking about it, but I feel like I could guess it. But um, I want to ask the worst you, kept um, secret in, in IWC. No, uh, your highlight of the podcast. Exactly. What was what was your personal best? Uh, uh, yeah, what was the best episode? What was the best moment? What was the highlight? And yes, um, I agree. Pretty much everybody <laughs> heard your excitement and yeah, no, yeah. heard how stoked you uh, were exactly. of having Hans Zimmer. I would guess, but um, like, tell me, tell me about it. He, he was somebody else from the Footlocker at Hauptwache for sure. After yeah. we found out that he only lived around the corner, uh, but no, of course, Hans has been. Uh, uh, a childhood and youth hero of mine who really um, influenced my um, creativity and influenced the way that I designed and thought about the world and his music um, providing really the atmospheric background to, to a lot of my development in those days. Um, and it is, it is every single time I speak to him, it is fascinating, not only how um, deeply philosophical he is, but also how he's somebody who can really see the bigger picture. And I think uh, this moment that we're going to... Uh, uh, throw ourselves back to in a, in a second is really a, a strong example of Hans making a bridge between different worlds and really coming to some quite profound truth about what it is that connects people. Let's have a listen. All musical instruments are technology. You know, they're technology of their time. But what, what I think is extraordinary, for instance, the violinist plays a very high note. The quarter of a millimeter to the left or to the right makes the difference between an in-tune note and a dreadful out-of-tune note. So the finesse, the way that things are so small and so precise and have to be, you know, that you you literally, you know, you must have it under your fingers. You know, it's, to me, it doesn't sound that different from a watch design. The you know, the, the refinements, that you're constantly talking about refinements. Absolutely. You're, you're constantly talking about refinements in the materials as well. I mean, um, every, everybody would love to find that word that um, Stradivari used. Um, there are people who are spending their life figuring out what metals to use to build strings, etc. So the watch business and the... Uh, musical instrument business is driven by people with an enormous passion. And I think 
partly what happens with the end customer is that the end customer in a concert or by putting a watch on their hand or whatever it is, you know, they feel that they are, they are now part, they, they close that circle of, of passion and, and imagination. This is hands down one of the best, deepest descriptions of the customer experience in a passion business I've ever heard. I mean, I'm also literally speechless. I am too. Like uh, goosebumps all over. But let's let's. So I'm still thinking about that one. Paul. Yeah. Now I just say let, let, let's let's have a look at. Do you have a favorite moment from uh, various episodes that you hosted? And you hosted quite a few. Yeah, I due did. To my I'm, terrible uh, calendar. I'm. I'm uh, I mean, there's been so many different personalities, but I think I got to go back to George because, like, number one. I'm I'm aware, you know, I I still hang with the team and stuff. So like George sometimes, because he's good looking, he's tall, he's British, he's on pictures. He sometimes looks a little bit like not super nice and friendly, like a little bit too good looking, you know, like a little too James Bond. But um, I know him. And he's one of the most kind and personal and sympathetic. Like, he's a really nice guy. And he really talks nice. And he's yeah, curious I about... Totally agree. And, and he's he's really a good guy. Um, and the episode that we recorded, it came across how cool he is. And we did... Like, you know, he visited Schaffhausen. He visited... Um, we did, like, a soapbox race together. And yes, did. we did a lot of very hands-down things together. And, and I'm a little bit proud of showing that side maybe a little bit better than press pictures where he's wearing sunglasses or something. So um, that's that's probably my highlight. And one of the stories he told about uh, his youth and how, how it was growing up on the racetracks was probably my highlight of of the whole thing so so let's listen to that part of george russell and the episode with me i've my my older brother is 11 years older than me and he started go-karting at 10 years old so i grew up on a racetrack i used to have this little pedal tractor i used to pedal around the go-kart tracks on when i was two three years old and it was quite funny i used to have this uh, water tanker i used to put on the back of my of my pedal tractor and I used to collect all the water for the for the go-kart team to fill up their their radiators for the engine every day. They'd drain the water, fill up the water, and there's this two, three-year-old kid going around collecting their all of their water for the day in his water tanker. And um I also used to collect these old tires for I don't know why, it was just on my little trailer. I used to collect these old tires and my dad, it was a way for my dad just to let me entertain myself, I think. But there was one day he was a bit cross at me because I came back and I, I didn't realize, but I'd gone into somebody's uh, garage and I'd taken a brand new set of tires that I had no idea were brand new, which are obviously worth, you know, 100 or 200 pounds. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've just effectively stolen this person's brand new set of tires as a three-year-old kid, and brought them <laughs> back to my brought them back to my father. And there was no way of finding out whose tires they were. Um, so I think we just I don't know what we did with them in the end. So that that was <laughs> that was the early days, and then I had um, very early days, and then I had a 50cc quad bike from about four years old. Uh, before I jumped into a go-kart for the very first time at seven. So I don't know. I look back on these experiences of pedaling my tractor and driving a quad bike around a field, and I really do think it helped me become 
the driver I am today because when I jumped in the go-kart for the very first time, I it felt natural. You know, I was used to movement. I was used to speed. I was used to controlling something with four wheels and a steering wheel, okay, albeit on a pedal tractor and on a little 50cc quad bike. But I think that was ingrained into my body from the age of two. And it's, it's all I've ever known. So sounds silly, but I, I do really believe that that helped me when I when I jumped into a go-kart for the first time. Ooh, what a Priceless. nice guy. Priceless. Yeah, I, I really and as like a it. 50th episode special, we can now reveal that we have actually found the tires. So, you know, if you're the owner of this long lost set of tires, DM Paul or I, and we will do a special episode reuniting the, the poor victim the of George's tires. tire theft <laughs> with their property. Yeah, perfect. Uh, before we finish, I do ask that one question everybody and i was waiting for this for 50 episodes finally i can ask you chris you have one additional hour of the week you know like you have one hour extra what would you do with that hour if you have more time in life if I have one hour per week well extra. <laughs> i could probably just about finish the things that i always promised myself i would finish by the end of the week and then when that when that 6, 7 p.m. Friday panic sets in, you never quite make it. And it, that's, it's so annoying. And, you know, you know Friday, Friday uh, uh, sort of dynamics is when everybody is sort of relieving their conscience of whatever they needed to dump on you. So you, <laughs> your in-tray is filling up nicely Friday afternoon. I'd love to have one hour just to reply to everyone and say, I've seen that's, this, I read it, and here's my feedback. Good luck and happy weekend. <laughs> that's very interesting because everybody else was talking about his, uh, the things he couldn't do in his private life, like sailing, <laughs> skiing, and whatever. You so said you, one you, hour. What kind yeah. of sailing or skiing are you trying to do one <laughs> Yeah, you have an extra hour. You can start sailing. You can do a little bit of that. But it's very, very interesting. But we have another thing we can reveal too. This is not the last episode. We have some more coming up. Uh, Partners in Time is going for another 50 episodes. I don't know. Absolutely. How long are we going to do Absolutely. this, my friend? That's Chris. what we are. That's what we said at the opening of the Manufacturing Center. Here's to the next yeah. 150. So, you know, yeah. 50 episodes seems like a, a smaller task by comparison. So let's go for it. Yeah, I'm up for it. It's really fun doing this project. And I'm looking forward to seeing you soon, my friend, in, in, yeah. in Miami, probably. Are you in Miami? Yes, absolutely. We're going to be yeah. in Miami. We're going to bring that uh, tractor with the, the pedalo tractor <laughs> with the water tank on the back. And I want to see George complete a full lap of the track. It's actually one of the cars that will definitely last for a full lap of the track. <laughs> <laughs> No, we, we want to see that. We're going to bring. We're going to. We're going to unearth this tractor and hopefully yeah. also use that opportunity to invite a special somebody to Miami to reunite them with their long lost tires. So this yeah. will be. <laughs> this, this is human interaction. I like it. So thanks for doing this and have a great day, my Thank friend. you, Paul, and you. Speak to you soon. Always ask one question at the end of uh, each podcast episode over here. What would you do? If you would have more time on your hand, like the day has six extra hours or the week has an extra day or the month has an extra week, what would you use it for? I could have like two hours more between one and three. I would definitely work these two hours and then extend my sleep more into, into the day. It's reading more, reading more books, because I always feel that I don't have time to read. And every time I open a book, 
like I learned so much and I'll, I'll definitely be with my family, with my wife and daughter, probably in Positano. Let's continue my Japanese studies. You would ask my personal trainer. I'm sure she would say more sports. <laughs> I just wish I had way more time to read. I'm reading. I'll do, I'll do, I'll spend an extra hour doing whatever that I love to do. Anything besides scrolling on Instagram, I guess. Something valuable. Spend, yeah. spend time with my cat together with my wife 